The word multimedia is the use of a variety of artistic or communicative media using more than one medium of expression or communication. Café is a type of establishment that serves coffee and is known as a place where information can be exchanged. The following is the audio version of the Multimedia Café. And happy Tuesday to you folks. February 12th, two days before Valentine's Day here at the Multimedia Cafe. We're looking at today's special and we got some flashback interviews. All right, we'll get to that in just a second. My name is Jason Spies. I'm your host. Thank you very much for pulling up a stool, joining the conversation here at the Multimedia Cafe, a place where you never know who you're going to run into or what you're going to talk about. Here at the Multimedia Cafe, we have embraced modern technology in all of its forms. So our conversations happen over Skype, maybe over the telephone, maybe over the cellular phone or the handheld communication device, uh, handheld computer that works as a communication device. And sometimes we do face-to-face -face interviews. Can you imagine that? We still do face-to-face -face interviews here at the Multimedia Cafe. And the cafe, of course, exchange of ideas. What better place to get your information about what's going on in any town USA than the cafe? Right here, the Multimedia Cafe. All right, let's take a look at what we got going on today because we have a really good topic today. All right, you ready for this? First of all, it's flashback interview day because I wanted to show you how long we've been talking about this topic here with the Crude Life Media Network, which is the network that carries the Multimedia Cafe. They give us a home, a place to hang our hat, as well as some radio stations. And we thank you very much for the radio stations. We thank you very much for the podcasting abilities and choosing us. All right, getting back to there. I almost lost my train of thought here for a second. Getting back to this, uh, we saw this about... 2013 that a lot of the energy companies specifically were really kind of influencing through their jobs the two-year degree a lot of artificial intelligence a lot of welding a lot of you know you your old school trade skills at your tech schools that type of thing uh, pipe fitting electricians like I said welding those people are really considered like demigods out in the uh, oil patches because they're hard to come by. They're very hard to come by. Man, plumbers, if you're a plumber, you can write your own ticket. And you only got to go to school for a while on that one compared to a four-year, eight-year degree type of a thing. That's what the conversation is about, is whether to go to a two-year school or a four-year degree. Now, that's just generally speaking because the four-year degree is your business uh, communications type uh, bachelor's degree. Your two-year is your trade but sometimes you can get your trade in nine months so uh two is just the the stereotypical way to put it and then you know you can't forget your six to eight year degrees we call it your eight year degree which is your doctors your lawyers your dentists that type of thing now that's a whole different conversation because if you're gonna try to be a doctor or lawyer you got to keep going on that and it takes a lot of schooling to do that now if you're gonna go into the workplace as not one of those specialized things, accounting too that's another one actually I think that's a four-year degree but my point is if it's a specialized degree okay you have a path if you don't know what you're gonna do there's a conversation to have which is should we go to a trade school and 
you know, get our degree in a couple years and make a hundred grand a year coming out of school? Or should we go to a four-year degree and be a quarter million dollars in debt and go out there in a very competitive workforce? We started talking about this back in 2013. So who we have planned for today, you ready for this? Sean Hannity, media personality with Fox News. We asked him, I asked him about that very thing about how uh, the work ethic where people in Vegas were going up to North Dakota of all places because of the Bakken oil boom, that sort of thing. So we talked about the work ethic and how you can make a lot of money in the oil and gas industry. And then he shares a few stories of his past employment as well. Uh, Target Logistics founder Brian Lash, he talks about that very topic, which is about you can make a couple quarter million dollars in five years out in Western North Dakota uh, driving truck and hauling water that sort of thing and then when you're 24 25 years old you can go start your subway franchise go start your you know whatever your dream is that sort of thing subway franchise is what we just kind of threw out there is you know whatever the small business is that you choose to do or maybe it's a you know a franchise like i said bill dunkelberg chief economist the national federation of independent business he gives us an overview of how the economy works with the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs, that sort of thing. So we've, we're going to talk a little bit about that two-year, four-year argument about should your, should your child go to a two-year degree or a four-year degree. Well, you know what? There's no right answer. The only right answer is you got to have the conversation because there used to be a paradigm shift. I'm sorry. There used to be a thought that was you have to go to a four-year degree there has been a paradigm shift with thought thank you very much okay we should probably can we edit that out we can't can we okay so let's just start over on that the old way of thinking get your high school diploma go to a four-year school that needs to change it just needs to have a conversation about whether a four-year degree or a two-year degree or an eight-year degree is the right path for your child or even you you might go back to school. Who knows? All right. I'm rambling. It's it's Tuesday, and it's getting close to Valentine's Day, so I got other things on my mind. Uh, we got a great program, actually. Brian Lash, uh, Sean Hannity, Bill Dunkelberg, plus some original music. Boy, we got a good program today. Flashback day here on the Multimedia Cafe. Our interviews, the old interviews are so old that they're new. That's what's awesome about what we do here. We talk about topics that transcend time. All right, let's go to a quick break. We come back. Sean Hannity, right here on the Multimedia Cafe. Lonely hearts whisper things you can't feel. When will I touch ground so I can start over again? Jason Spies, the most trusted voice in the Bakken. I totally agree with you, and the word that you brought into this is fact. You tell the facts, and then you let people make up their own minds. If you want someone who's competent, you don't want to get a bunch of rookies. Love listening to Jason Spies on the radio, and if I miss him there, I catch him online. Let's bring in Jason Spies, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Um, Jason, what's your thought on this? No one does an interview like Jason Spies. 
Welcome back to the Multimedia Cafe. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for pulling up a stool, joining the conversation here, a place where you never know who you're going to run into or what we're going to talk about. Well, coming up next, we're going to run into Sean Hannity, media personality with Fox News, talking about your work ethic. They have 15 to 20,000 high school seniors graduating with no jobs down there. Parents are recommending to go to North Dakota versus a four-year school or even the Army because there's better regimen up here in the oil industry. Your comments on they're pushing them out of school and into the oil patch. Uh, I'm not again. I wouldn't be the person I am if I didn't spend years washing dishes, cooking, waiting tables, bussing tables, tending bar, painting homes, hanging wallpaper, laying tile, framing houses, doing roofing, and doing reconstruction. You know what? I know what it's like to have $200 in the bank for years. This uh, this is decades of my life. People think, oh, Hannity, you're a radio and TV guy. You must be rich. I'm like, well, whatever money I had, it, it came later in life, and the best thing I ever did was get my hands dirty and go to work. And um, I've never, it just, it's, it leaves such an impression on you. So, you know, if my son wants to go to work and, and get his hands dirty, I'm all for it. I make him work hard enough now, so um, I'm all for it. You know, the sad thing is there's a couple of statistics that came out all this week, actually. I think one was in USA Today, and uh, I forgot what other paper, about... The people, with all the talk about the recovery summer and the stimulus and shovel-ready jobs, we have more people graduating college, going home, living with mommy and daddy. Now, I left home at 18. I don't want to go back home and live with mommy and daddy. And I don't think those kids do either. That's not why they went to college. Then there was a story about in California, you have 50 to 64-year-olds moving in with their parents. Last thing I want when I'm 80 is to have my kid... I'm moving in, Dad. I'm like, no, you're not. Go get a job. So, um, this is the look. You all know. You're all experienced. I don't even know why you guys are in the media here. You all to all get out in the oil fields. You're gonna make more money. My first, my first job in radio paid me paid job paid nineteen thousand dollars a year, and I moved to Huntsville, Alabama. Um, that's the other thing. I worked my way up in media, right from the bottom. I worked for free, nineteen thousand dollars a year, forty thousand dollars a year. I moved to states where I never knew a single soul. And, uh, and then I was very blessed and lucky. I'd like to say it's talent, but it's not. And that was Sean Hannity, media personality with Fox News. Coming up next, Target Logistics founder Brian Lash talking about dropping out of medical school to pursue his American dream. My name is Jason Spies, and this is the Multimedia Cafe. Back to the Multimedia Cafe. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for pulling up a stool and joining the conversation here at the Multimedia Cafe, a place where you never know who you're going to run into or what you're going to talk about. Coming up next, we're talking with Brian Lash. He's the founder of Target Logistics. This interview was conducted back when he was the chairman of Target Logistics. Since then, he's gone on to greener pastures, but this interview still encapsulates the conversation we're having, a two-year degree, a four-year degree, and what it takes to have the American dream. This is Brian Lash. Uh, Brian Lash, founder and chairman, Target Logistics. Well, let's start with the uh, maybe the genesis of uh, Target Logistics. 
So what? What? How did Target Logistics get started? And uh, let's just well, walk me through your first days. Okay. Well, how far back you want me to go? Uh, to my days uh, in college, looking for a way out of medical school. That sounds pretty good to me. No, uh, uh, how did you come up with the idea for this? Uh, okay, so I was on my way to medical school. Uh, got disenchanted. Wanted to really be a businessman and um, wanted to be in a business that let me do the two things that I love the most, which is sports and travel. So I started a sport travel company. And uh, that was in 1978. I was 21 years old. I had 3,800 hours and uh, ran the business out of my apartment. Uh, started off doing ski tours in the winter and teaching tennis in the summer and then started going year-round with adventure travel, whitewater rafting, golf, scuba, sailing. And then uh, got into the special event travel business, working for the Orange Bowl, uh, taking all the uh, teams to the football game, the bands for the parade, the tennis players for the Rolex Junior Tennis Tournament, and that from the Orange Bowl, um, I got to uh, work full-time, uh, well not full-time, I was the exclusive tour and travel operator for Florida State, did all their sports travel, and then from there, started doing special events like Woodstock and Olympic Games. And as my involvement in the Olympic Games got bigger, and it was all for me about scalability, um, I started not doing individuals to the Olympics, but started handling um, countries, Denmark, Norway, huge corporations like Motorola, and finally, the U.S. government. So started working a lot with security. And come, uh, come the aftermath of 9-11, uh, Target Logistics housed thousands of federal agents that were brought in to lock down Salt Lake against another invasion. Thousands of U.S. military also to protect the uh, Olympics from terrorism. While that was going on, we were also invited to bid on projects in Iraq. And we won a very large project in Iraq to build and operate a man camp for 2,200 soldiers. And we operated for the DOD in Basra during the second uh, Iraq invasion. Had that for a number of years. Simultaneously, figured if we're doing it in a war zone, three quarters of the way around the world, we could certainly do it for Hess and Halliburton. And uh, I was continuing my Olympic work, built a very large but temporary city for Olympic security in Whistler for the Vancouver Olympic Games, where the Alpine venues were. It slept 1,700 people, and it was only operable for 70 days. Halliburton came and saw it while it was up and being used for Olympic security and said, we want that building, because it was built for extreme weather conditions, and it was very... Uh, uh, efficient. It took up a small footprint. It was tall. It was multiple stories. Made of 185 uh, 8x40 containers. We moved that here to Williston, North Dakota in April of 2010. Immediately after the Olympics ended in, uh, in March. And that was our first uh, asset here in North Dakota. Was Williston? Was Williston. But oddly, even though the whole camp the lodge was brought to Williston in April. We opened another lodge first that was made of more traditional modular projects, which today is called our Williston North Lodge. So that opened first. The Halliburton facility 
now called the Muddy River Lodge, opened second. And in 2010, I was sitting right here. I had a booth at this show and was literally writing orders, sitting at my booth. Um, my whole life, I spent trying to sell people on my products and services, but it was very rare that there was ever a line to sign contracts with me. And that's what was happening in 2010. I already had Halliburton as a client. Thank God, they're the greatest folks. Uh, then we landed some other illustrious clients like Hess and uh, did a great job and word spread and we uh, became the dominant player in our industry, um, not only in the Bakken but in the United States in a matter of three, four years. So, What do you uh, make of the Bakken just, just as a uh, 5,000 foot view from your perspective and, and your background? As far as maybe where do you see it going in your industry, but also overall, because you do talk to a lot of very key people in the industry. Well, I'd like to find the next Bakken, but I don't know if it exists because this, for us, in a great way, was a perfect storm. You have a lot of oil. You have good oil. It's efficient and economical to mine. You have a region of the United States that's fairly desolate with very little infrastructure and very cold. That adds up to a huge demand for life support, quality life support, or otherwise known as remote workforce housing. In Texas, there's a lot of oil, but there's also a lot of infrastructure, lots of small towns, lots of fast food, lots of small motels and apartment complexes, and you can actually sleep in an RV if you wanted to and make it through the winter. So as far as our growth here in the Bakken goes, we're very happy with our current position. We've probably got 60-70% market share. We have over 4,200 bedrooms here in North Dakota. We're running over 90%. We are very proud of what we've accomplished, but I still think there's some growth. We have some clients we're talking to about maybe expanding a few locations, but simultaneously we have some locations that are getting smaller because we had the gigantic facility we built for Hess with 1,100 rooms and a 100-slot RV park, and that was for their gas plant, which is now done. So that uh, that's our only lodge that's not full, really, in North Dakota. Um, so we're moving slower, uh, but we still see a little bit of growth. I think we could be... We could grow another 10% in, in, in the bucket in the next... Uh, 12 to 24 months or we may not grow at all but we're certainly not going to shrink because we're we are almost full how many locations do you have now in north, in, in north dakota in north dakota i think we have 11 11 um former governor schaefer sits on the board of directors for continental resources he uh he talks about he's spoken to me about how Changing some of the regulations and the tax laws allowed that oil and gas movement to cross borders from Canada into the United States. Canada and the United States have some different rules and regulations. How does that play into your particular industry? I've heard that Canada almost welcomes these, uh, these manufactured crew camps, temporary crew camps, almost with open arms. What, uh, what, what do you make about the relationship or the regulation differences between Canada and the United States? Canada is more accepting of workforce housing than almost 
all the communities in, in America that do have oil or minerals. Um, it's more of a way of life, particularly in the oil sands. Um, and on a self-serving basis, I'd like to see um, a little more support for what we do because we are necessary to allow the economic growth and to prevent a real estate bubble from popping. If Williston and other communities keep building to meet what they think is an endless demand, there will come a reckoning. Workforce housing can be the band-aid, can be the bridge. Until such time that things level off, our facilities can be built, can be operable, and can be moved. And we can remediate the land back to farmland or whatever use the, the uh, community thinks is appropriate. But you can't pick up 180 apartments and move them. You can't pick up a residential development of 1,000 homes. And as motel and hotel operators are finding out, you can't pick up a brick-and-mortar hotel and move it. And occupancy is starting to fall in almost every city in the market. And rents are going to start falling in the apartment complex. Mr. Brian Lash, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought for just a second here at the Multimedia Cafe. It's Flashback Day. My name is Jason Spies, and we're going to continue the conversation here with Brian Lash. He's the Target Logistics founder. My name is Jason Spies, and this is the Multimedia Cafe. You know that I've lived, yeah, you know that I've tried. Well, I've told the truth, yeah, you know that I've lied. We all do what we do so we can survive. Now I was two when John Lennon died. Welcome back to the Multimedia Cafe. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for pulling up a stool and joining the conversation. Up next, we continue the conversation with Target Logistics founder, Brian Lash. City in the market. And rents are going to start falling in the apartment complexes. This is why Target Logistics is necessary. We run the safest, cleanest, best operation in the industry. We are great stewards and custodians and we're very respectful of the community and we give a lot back not because we're gratuitous and not because we're trying to earn favor but because we believe in the communities in which we serve we encourage our employees to move bring their children their husbands and wives join the churches and we give back we call it giving back to the Bakken because we believe that we are fortunate to be operating in the backyard of these great communities with that said more Workforce housing should be encouraged, and I think that the apartment developers, hotel developers, and residential developers are are going to, ho- hopefully not soon, but one day there's going to be an oversupply, and that's where we come in. We we're 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 a manager of that, you know, and it's it's important. Two things I've heard at this conference: one, to validate your rent comment that the rents will have to be pushed down considerably, maybe even upwards of 50% in the next six to eight months for a lot of this stuff to be foreseeable. The second is that a lot of these um, apartments and hotels, they're basing it on a 
30-year 100% occupancy in their pro formas. Now, that might be a little bit exaggerated of conference talk, but what you just told me kind of falls in line with what I just said. Um, what do you make of uh, some of those, just the, the, the housing in general, um, in terms of, say, Dickinson, Bismarck, some of the places more on the interstate versus, say, like a Williston or Tioga, which you got to drive to get to civilization a bit. Yep. You know, I mean, I, I can see where these temporary camps might come in pretty handy. Not not only are we great to, to um, uh, what's the word, uh, modulate uh, the real estate pricing, rent, uh, expected rent, expected occupancy, and all of that, but it's really hard for them to compete with us. We have a very compelling economic model. Our average client is paying $115 per room per night, includes your room, three unlimited and fabulous meals a day, unlimited and free recreation, unlimited and free use of the internet, unlimited and free use of laundry machines and detergent, even the DVDs are free, and it's a community. There's a lot of social engineering that goes on, and we create bonds that are hard to break. So if you're living in the Bear Paw Lodge, and you work for Halliburton, and you've been living there for 500 other Halliburton guys for six months, and you play poker with Bob and Steve and Robert every Monday night, and you play football with another group of guys every Tuesday night, and you lift weights every morning with your workout partner. Well, when a competitor of Halliburton comes along and offs you another dollar an hour, it's not worth it to jump ship because it means you're you're leaving your home, you're leaving your community, you're leaving your friends, and everything's being paid for by the customer. But if the customer looks at paying 115 versus going to the comfort suites, like I'm staying at tonight. Okay, I'm in Bismarck, but I'm paying 149 But in Williston, you're going to pay 149 also. It doesn't include meals. So what would you rather pay, 115 with meals and know that your guys are well cared for? There's a noise curfew. There's no drinking. There's no drugs. There's no weapons. There's no cohabitation. You know where your men are. You know what time they're getting up in the morning. You know they're well-fed and well-rested. Or you want to put them in a motel, give them a per diem for, for food, and hope that they don't spend that at the local ballet, if you catch my drift. So what you're talking about leads me into my next question, which starts with a comment, which is, <clears throat> I just got back from Vegas a few weeks ago, and one of the things that they were talking about was 15,000, 20,000 kids graduating with no jobs. There's no jobs in the workplace for them down in Las Vegas. A couple of the parents were recommending the oil patch over the Army because of all those regimented reasons you just gave what do you just your comment on that as far as parents now recommending going out and work in the oil patch because it's more regimented than the army is what, what do you think of that i think parents are recommending that their kids go to the oil patch not so much for the regimentation but for the economic gain i have friends and friends children who have come out here some to work for my company and some to work for others because there is no place in America where an 18-year-old without a college education can make $100,000 a year, pay nothing in rent, pay nothing for food, and after taxes, and after vacations, and after coming home every six weeks for a two-week holiday, can bank fifty or 60000 a year. 
Imagine you're 18 years old, you come here for five years, you've got a five-year plan, and after five years, you're going to have a quarter billion dollars in the bank, you're going to go home, you're going to buy a Subway franchise, and now you've got the American dream. You're your own businessman, you have your own, and you're 23 years old, you've got no debt, and yes, while you're out here, you're keeping your nose clean, because I can't speak for my competitors' facilities, but you try to come into our facility after you've been drinking, you get locked out. You come, you make noise after 10 o'clock, you get thrown out. If you try to bring drugs or alcohol into our facility, we notify your employer you lose your job and your bed. It's strict, but it works. And the people that stay with us love it because it's for the enjoyment of everyone that we have to make these rules. Are we stricter than the Army? I don't think so. But in a lot of ways, we're similar. And guess what? One in every four of my employees is ex-military. So this didn't just, I didn't just invent this stuff. You know, we went out through doing many, many uh, different temporary facilities around the world, both for Katrina and Arizona, for a copper mine, and in Iraq, we learned that what things are going to work and what things aren't going to fly. And so our formula, our secret sauce, is, is more than just, you know, some, uh, uh, it wasn't just, didn't just fall from the sky. That your, your comments about the brotherhood really stood out as far as that Army correlation to me, because you do. You develop a family within your within your uh, uh, workhouse workforce housing. Really, I've seen it firsthand. I know about it. I, I know about the uh, uh, professional chefs you guys have on staff. I've talked to people who stay there. They absolutely love it. A couple of the guys like it because of the rules. Actually, they they they, they, they think they'd be out carousing if they didn't have those rules. But their family back home in Illinois means more to them than a couple beers after 10 o'clock. And think about how much more money you save when you're not out at the bars every night. You know, one drink becomes five, and it's not so cheap in Williston these days. You know, four and five dollar beers is more common than ever. I mean, I when I first started coming here in 2009, it's two dollars for a long neck. Yeah. You know, those days are over. So it's... Uh, they must have thought you were a local. <laughs> Well, final comments are yours. Uh, whatever you want people to, uh, the listeners, the readers, the uh, uh, live streamers, I guess, or the YouTubers, uh, just what you want people to remember and know about Target Logistics. Well, uh, I think two things are really important. One is our mantra, wherever you go, whatever it takes. Uh, we have uh, operated in the harshest environments, even war zones. Uh, harsh environments that are desolate or cold or uh, in the jungle or uh, it doesn't matter we're up to the test and so we've met deadlines for Olympic Games that are unheard of building a 1700 person temporary city into a mountain across the street from the Whistler Ski Resort in 72 days Uh, but the other thing that's important is uh, what we call the economics of comfort that if our clients entrust their employees to live in our facilities that will return them to the workplace every morning better fed, better rested, with a greater sense of morale and enjoyment, and therefore they'll be more productive and more safe in the workplace. The return on investment is what we call the economics of comfort. Our clients get back every dollar and more that they invest when they have their people stay at Target Logistics workforce lodges because of the reasons that are seen each day in productivity and safety. And you can't ever put a, a, a dollar value on human life. Uh, but productivity is also the other thing that 
you know, most of these companies are Wall Street traded companies that people are looking at, and we've proven that our guests are more productive and there's less attrition when they stay at our facilities. So that's the economics of comfort. Mr. Brian Lash, thank you very much. Thank you. And that was Brian Lash, the founder of Target Logistics. Like I said, that interview was conducted a number of years ago, back when Brian Lash was the chairman of then Target Logistics. Since then, he's gone on to enjoy life. Coming up next, we're going to be joined with Bill Dunkelberg, chief economist for the National Federation of Independent Business. Gives us an overview of how the economy works with ebbs and flows and the ups and downs. My name is Jason Spies, and this is the Multimedia Cafe. Welcome back to the Multimedia Cafe. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for pulling up a stool and joining the conversation, a place where you never know who you're going to run into or what we're going to talk about. Coming up next, we talk with Bill Dunkelberg. He's the chief economist with the National Federation of Independent Business. Bill Dunkelberg, National Federation for Independent Business. Yeah, chief economist. Let's talk about that a little bit. Explain that the what the National Federation for Independent Business does. Well, NFIB was founded in 1943 as a kind of counterpoint to the, um, yeah, whatever that is, the Chamber of Commerce. The Chamber of Commerce, which you know, which was tended to be dominated by the major donors. So right. NFIB kind of said, you know, here's we're going to represent small business, mm-hmm. and uh, here's the deal. I'll just make up some numbers. Uh, $50 to be a member, but the most anybody can contribute is $200. Oh, so they put a ceiling. Exactly. So, so, and then they're run by a big board of, uh, of independent businesses. So that way, you know, they they aren't going to be dominated by big firm money, mm-hmm. which you know typically happens in a chamber. It doesn't mean it's bad. Chambers are bad. Chambers have lots of small business members, but so they were founded in 1943 for that. They currently have about. 350,000 member firms across the United States. Uh, they lobby on behalf of small business in, in Washington, D.C., of course, and in every state capital in 50 mm-hmm. states. So that's basically what NFIB does. Quick state of the union for small business, I guess. You know, we hear that it's the uh, uh, engine of the uh, nation's economy, but every time I turn around, I see consolidation, I see duopolies that popping up left and right. Is small business okay? Well, that, that does happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but it's always a dynamic. I mean, the, you know, the small, the small business sector, first of all, is the R&D for the economy. Great Anybody term, who's yeah. got a, a new idea about a product or a service or how to do something better or whatever, you start it out there. And if you're right, you're rewarded with profits. That funds your growth, right? Mm-hmm. People copy you so you get more firms. Mm-hmm. If you're wrong, well, you know, we fail, and we have that all the time. Um, but, but we don't lose you. We don't lose the building you're in. You know, so if your Chinese restaurant failed, do you reopen it as a French restaurant? Same chef, you know. <laughs> I, I get it. Uh, but yeah. you keep using you keep using the resources until you make money, which is the signal that you're using the resources well. That's the strength of the U.S. economy. That's that's how we allocate resources. So, 
you know, so it's always very dynamic, and, and we, we forget, of course, that all these big firms started off small. I mean, Microsoft started off as, you know, one person. Uh, Walmart started off as one store, right? And they did things right, and so that's what we got. The, but the other thing we forget about is that Walmart was not the only store trying to do this. Uh, there were a lot of firms trying to do an operating system, right? And they, they didn't make it, but it, over years and years of all of this trying to get it done, Tens of millions of people got jobs on the job training, got skills. Got, so just the dynamic uh, of the small business sector employs tens of millions of people. If you look at it steady state-wise, uh, small businesses defined as those with 500 or fewer employees by the SBA employ over half of the private sector workforce and produce half of the private sector GDP. So small business is really big business. Small business is really big business. Yeah, now it's not doing very well lately, but then most of the economies are not doing so well. We are bifurcated. And, you know, the stock market mm -hmm. did a new record high today, uh, and there are corporate profits, but those big firms are selling around the world, mm -hmm. which are small businesses can't do. So they're doing very well. Let's say they're growing at 4%. Small business sector isn't really going anywhere, especially since it, it dominates the service sector and consumer spending on services has been very, very slow. So we're not growing much at all. So let's say zero. So zero plus four divided by two is 2% 2 growth. That's what we've had uh, since the recovery started, 2% growth. And until we can get the small business sector back to life, hiring people so we can get the unemployment rate to fall, you know, we're going to have sluggish growth. In your opinion, how important is the energy sector to small business? Well, there are. Well, it's important to small business, but to the economy. I mean, there are two kind of bright spots in the economic outlook. Housing, mm -hmm. right? So we're, we're coming from housing starts at only 500,000 after we were at 2.2 million. We fell all the way to 500,000. We're back. So maybe we'll do a million at an annual rate this, this year. So that'll create a lot of jobs that we lost back in the housing market. The other is energy. Energy is an incredible bright spot. And although a lot of it is focused out here, kind of in that strip from Texas to up to the Canadian border, uh, there are other places that, are, that have like Western Pennsylvania mm -hmm. and so on. So California, California's got you know if they can just get out of their own way, with yeah. all the, you know, I, I don't they can develop there. these resources. So it's going to be really wonderful. And so right now, lots of jobs create could be created if we get the Keystone approval. Obviously, mm -hmm. you know, moving the energy is really important. The, raw material. So there's, we can easily become energy independent in a decade or so. Uh, that doesn't mean energy is cheap. It means that we would just be buying most of what we use, oil, gas, whatever, coal, right here in North America. And that would be, that would be really cool. Um, well, what does that mean to be energy independent in a global economy? Well, what it means is that you're buying everything here. It's independent. It didn't say cheap, right? And, and, the, and the natural gas thing is a great example. Natural gas in the United States sells for about three bucks an MCF. But in Europe, it's 13. Now look at oil, the price of oil, a barrel of oil is the same kind of everywhere. Well, the difference is everybody can export and import oil. So all the producers can export and people can buy it. We can't do that with our natural gas. We're, we don't have any way to export it. So you can understand that over the next 10 years, we'll, there'll be a lot of money to be made and we should do this in learning and getting set up to export this natural gas to mm -hmm. customers around the world. Uh, their price will come down, our price will come up, and natural gas in a decade, say, will be like oil, kind of the same price 
everywhere. That's what you have in a big competitive market. And, and the process of doing that, of course, is going to be wonderful for the U.S. economy, and particularly, you know, states that have all of this energy to, to be developed. And that was Bill Dunkelberg, Chief Economist with the National Federation of Independent Business. I'd like to thank Mr. Dunkelberg with the National Federation of Independent Business, as well as Target Logistics founder Brian Lash and Sean Hannity, media personality at Fox News. Thank you very much for taking the time out to interview with me. Jason Spies, the host of the Multimedia Cafe. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, those were flashback interviews. We conducted those interviews a number of years ago. But the conversation of whether to have a four-year degree, a two-year degree, is an ongoing one. And back then, we started it. We started it back in 2012, 2013, and we interviewed some thought leaders throughout the nation on that very topic. All right. That's going to do it for the Multimedia Cafe today on this February 12th. It's a Tuesday, two days till Valentine's Day. Have you got your Valentine's Day in order? I'll tell you what, guys. I'll give you a little hint. Let's say you've been married for 20 years. I got a hint for you. Just go pick up a little kid Valentine, write your wife's name on it with the last initial, and your name with the last initial. Maybe a stick of juicy fruit. Maybe a, a, one of those suckers with the Indian shooting the star. What are those called? Tootsie Pops. Maybe, you know, with some tape, that sort of thing. And sure, that there's still a little kid left in you, you know, that, that you like to embrace. Some of the spice of life, you know, that's what it's all about. All right, that's going to do it today, folks. Thank you very much. My name is Jason Spies from the staff at the Multimedia Cafe. My name is Jason Spies asking you to savor life and enjoy the spice. Tell me where will you run To where will you run Cause I'll be by your side Whenever you fall in the dead of night Whenever you call and please don't fight These hands that are holding you And my hands are holding you Look at these hands in my side You swallow the grave On that night When I drank the world's sin So I could carry you in And give you life I wanna give you life Cause I'll be by your side Whenever you fall in the dead of night Whenever you call and please don't fight These hands that are holding you Here my hands are holding here in my side Whenever you fall in the dead of night Whenever you call and please don't fight These hands that are holding you my hands are holding you. Jason Spies, the most trusted voice in the Bakken. I totally agree with you, and the word that you brought into this is fact. You tell the facts, and then you let people make up their own minds. If you want someone who's competent, you don't want to get a bunch of rookies. Love listening to Jason Spies on the radio, and if I miss him there, I catch him online. Let's bring in Jason Spies, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Um, Jason, what's your thought on this? No one does an interview like Jason Spies. Is there 
for anything I won't do for money? I think it's pretty obvious not. I'm shameless. I don't care. You want me to paint your cat's front claws? I'll do it. If the price is right. One time, I mowed my neighbor's five-acre lawn with a weed whacker for three bucks, and I earned it. You ever get stung by bees while cleaning the gutters? Have a Rottweiler do his business on you during a walk? One time, I was paid $400 to hit a realtor in the face with a pie. I'd like to get more pie work. Kids and Capitalism. 